Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you and preparing to wander once again down golf's roads less travelled. In the modern age, when we think about the game's biggest events and its best players, we immediately conjure up images of perfectly manicured courses being traversed by heavily sponsored players wielding space-age clubs. Big-time golf. Frankly, it's a circus, and golf is only a small part of it. But it wasn't always that way, and in fact, for it to get to this point, there have been many crucial moments and periods in history where things could have been very different. Today, we're going to be talking to author Stephen Proctor about one such period in history, ahead of the release of his second book in June, The Long Golden Afternoon. Stephen, along in just a moment, but first let me bring in my regular co-host, Adrian Logue. Logue, welcome. I always wish more people took more of an interest in this stuff. It is genuinely fascinating. It is indeed, and uh, Stephen's one of the people who can write this stuff in a very relatable and entertaining manner, and uh, yeah, I think it's great that we can have him on and talk about the book and get people to be aware of it, because yeah, there's some great stories here. Absolutely. No matter what level of interest your golf is at, you'll always be better off if you read a little bit about the history. Let's get to the man himself. Stephen Proctor was a virtual unknown in the golf world prior to the release of his first book, Monarch of the Green, the story of young Tom Morris a couple of years ago. That book received rave reviews. He's no longer an unknown. The former newspaper man from Florida now on the verge of releasing his second book, which he has kindly dropped by to talk to us about today. Stephen, welcome. Are you one of those annoying retirees who now wonders how you ever had time to go to work? Uh, no, I'm not. I uh, I have a lot of time to do what I want. I golf three days a week. I uh, I write four mornings a week, every week. And I uh, I also participate in the management of two municipal courses here as part of a nonprofit corporation that uh, that runs the two golf courses where I play most of my golf. Hmm. Did you ever have time to go to work? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a very uh, – Here a being very somewhere in Florida, correct? Yes, uh, I'm in Malabar, Florida, a small rural neighborhood. And uh, these two courses are one is in Valkaria and the other is in Spessard Highland at Melbourne Beach. Never heard of any of that. No. But I'm sure it's. Uh, it's not. Well, it's interesting. I'm sure they're small town golf courses with lots of small town players who love their particular mud heap as much as anybody who plays at Pine Valley or Cypress Point, yeah? That is so true. And. They're very different golf courses. They're lovely courses. One's a full-length course of about 7,000 yards, a uh, pretty testing golf course. The other is a par 67 that's located in between the ocean and the and the intercoastal waterway, the river. So it's uh, what I like to call sporting golf by the sea. Uh, six par threes, tough holes all, uh, about 5,100 yards total. To set the scene for all of this in some ways, Stephen, you play those golf courses quite a bit with the Hickory Clubs, don't you? You are a golf history nut. Would that be fair to say? How did that happen before we come to talking specifically about the book? Why the history of the game? Well, well, when I first took a lesson from the very aptly named Mason Champion, he was of the opinion that no one could be a truly good golfer and enjoy the game at its fullest if they didn't appreciate the history and traditions of the game. So all of his lessons came with a sign things to do in terms of swinging the club but also books so the first lesson that i took he assigned me george pepper's a history of golf uh kind of a table you know coffee table type history of the game but it was wonderful that was where i first came across the story of young tom it got me interested in reading more about the history of the game and i've not stopped doing that since uh so he was had a lot to do with me starting down a road of wanting to know more about the history of the game Mm. Mm. ultimately 
his teaching has resulted in you being a fine golfer. Is that correct, Stephen? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very mediocre golfer. I have never been below – well, I think I had a cup of coffee once as a 12 handicap, but I've been a, a 14 to 16 handicap pretty much all my life, and no matter how hard I've tried, I have failed to get beyond that. That coffee was uh, the worst decision you've ever made. If you hadn't had that coffee, who knows what you might have been playing off today, Stephen. <laughs> You might, right. you might be down off scratch. Who knows? I, mean, I have done things like get a personal trainer. I've tried everything. I'm just, I'm not an athlete, and that reveals itself at the game probably. Did the personal trainer give you a book on the history of personal <laughs> training? Before no. Yes. no I mean, not I'm, I'm going to refuse to see any professional. Who doesn't can't, who doesn't give you a book assignment? That'd be Clates. Yeah. That's how Clates would teach golf. <laughs> okay. What are we going to do today, Clates? Well, you're going to go and read this book about course architecture, and when you come back, we might think about picking no, up a No cup. credibility unless you uh, yeah. That's actually a fascinating uh, idea, really Stephen, a, a yeah. pro that gives you a book to read. Well, what other books did he give a you? Bernard Darwin you? book. Yeah, no, uh, well, a pro with good <laughs> taste. <laughs> He gave me a book called uh, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. That was another okay. one of the assignments from Dr. Bob Rotella, very famous yep. book, obviously. And I honestly, it's been uh, 20 or 30 years since I started playing golf, so I don't remember all the others, but those two stuck with me. Yeah. And uh, But he was a wonderful teacher, and uh, he did get me to break 100 within one year, which I thought was pretty good for a person who 41-year-old mm. taken up the game who'd never played. Why so late in life? Uh, because... Well, I never, it, just golf wasn't something that interested me. Uh, I've had different periods of my life where I had obsessions. I was obsessed with chess for a very long time. Uh, and then I became obsessed with thoroughbred horse racing. And that's what I was doing uh, before I started playing golf. And uh, I, when I started to get fairly high up in the executive ranks at my newspaper, uh, my wife noticed that none of the executives went to the racetrack, but all of them played golf. And she thought that I should take up golf and sort of insisted that I take up golf. And uh, that's how it ended up starting. Prepare to get obsessed with watches once we finish here because Logan mm. will start talking to you about that. Well, Rod <laughs> and Rod doesn't know this about me, but I'm a very keen chess player as well. So, But there, there's a lot of parallels between chess and – I'm not and, surprised but, by it at yeah. all, I must say. And I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't say that as – I love the history of chess and uh, some of the personalities over time. It's well, that was how I started in chess too, getting a yeah. biography of Paul Morphy. Oh, yeah. You know, that sort of thing. That's how I – do most things. I was a history major in college in addition to journalism major. Uh, and I've always loved history. And I start anything I undertake, I really want to understand the history of it to begin with because that's how you understand the present. So help me with this then, Stephen. Why do so many people think that history is so uninteresting? This I could never tell you, Rod. I think part of it is, honestly, and particularly as it pertains to golf history, most serious golf history is done by people who are studying a very small particular thing. Uh, which they are uncovering something really important in that area. But the writing tends to be very difficult to approach for an average person. Um, so, for example, there are people I know that study uh, the early years of professional golf and research every tournament that's ever occurred and who won it and all the numbers and everything, and you can find that research everywhere. But it's hard to find research that is highly readable. Not that many are. So I think that's part of the reason is that history hasn't been written as a tale. And that's the whole point of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to write history as a tale so that it might be read by a person who just puts a, a peg in the ground on Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning. 
as opposed to an academic person. So like golf, but history my has is academic problem? in the sense right. of it's thoroughly researched yes. like an academic would. But my, my goal is to, to make golfers be able to tell their history as good as New York Yankee fans. Yeah. Every New York Yankee fans can tell you everything about Babe Ruth or Luke Gehrig, but very few golfers know who John Ball is. So golf has an image problem. History has an image problem too. Is that a fair parallel to draw? I do think that's true. I think history is considered boring by many people, and uh, and I think part of it is that the way the story of history is told very often is boring. That so that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Hmm. That desire to present things as a narrative, I immediately think that must go back directly to the fact that you've spent your life in newspapers, where yes, the idea is to present all the facts, but in a way that is interesting and that people will want to keep reading which is not a natural, it's a learned skill, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I was very, very lucky in my career that when uh, I was a very young man, uh, the Baltimore Sun, where I was working, uh, hired John Carroll as the editor-in-chief of the paper. And he was a brilliant man who wanted to do literary journalism at the paper. And for some reason, I was working in the news division. He settled on me as the person who could do that. And... Uh, and that's probably because he understood that I was a failed poet. In any case, um, he finding an awful lot out about of, you today, Stephen, that I didn't know. So this is great stuff. Yes. Yeah. So he put me in charge of the feature sections of the newspaper, and then hired for me a specialist in literary storytelling as my key editor. And from her, a woman named Jan Winburn, I learned an awful lot about literary storytelling. And then he also required me when I turned forty to uh, seek out a fellowship because he observed that I had never lived more than 30 miles from the place I was born and that I was limiting myself if I didn't go out and see a larger world. So I ended up uh, getting a fellowship at Stanford University for a year, and uh, you, the program that I proposed was to uh, enroll in the Wallace Stegner fiction writing program there. Uh, Wallace Stegner is a famous Western fiction writer in the United States and uh, write short fiction for a year, study short fiction for a year with the idea of applying those same techniques to the telling of newspaper stories. And so from that age until the end of my career in uh, at, at the age of 56, so I was 41 then, the last 15 years of my career, I uh, spent specializing in literary storytelling and literary journalism, uh, doing you know some stories that would run 31 days in a row, a chapter a day, uh, some stories that would just run five or six long chapters uh, in a week. Uh, so different kinds of things, stories about war, stories about human life, but all told as a narrative tale. And it's those skills that I felt gave me something to bring to golf history. So I came up with the notion of uh, what I want to do is to do that same exact thing, but about specific aspects of the history of golf that are uh, untold stories that hopefully I could write in a way that your average golfer wants to read it. We'll read and, and Kieran, this sounds somewhat like your wheelhouse to me, like this this sort of writing narrative storytelling. Well, I think I do. Stephen's probably much more compelled to write than I am. <laughs> Clearly. Like, sounds You've written like, two books already. What have you done? Three <laughs> yeah, columns? <laughs> it seems like you have no problem with motivation about writing. Which Stephen. is hard work and harder work, I find than most people probably realise, Stephen. It's a, it really is – it's not an easy thing to do to write, is it? It's a very challenging – I write a column a week and it puts me through the ringer every week to produce 500 words. 
No, it, it writing is a very hard thing. But honestly, I have never had a minute in my life when I didn't write. When I was a little kid, I produced a newspaper for my block of 10 houses. Uh, I worked on newspaper all through my school career, junior high school, high school, college. Uh, I have like, I would call a need to write. I'm not happy if I'm not writing something. So I, uh, one of the reasons that, you know, I got out of journalism because the business collapsed underneath of me and it was not possible anymore to, or a lot less possible, I should say, not to continue to do the kind of work I enjoyed doing that made me want to be a journalist. And I was the managing editor of the newspapers that I worked at, at toward the end. And what I mainly did was cut the budget and, and cut the staff. And that's just soul crushing. Yeah. By and that I stage never, of a career, it's got nothing, it's a bit like golf in some ways, I guess. It's really got nothing to do with news or newspapers or journalism, has it? No. It's, it you're running so a business. So I finally decided I have to get out of this. You know, it's going to destroy me mentally. Uh, and I thought, well, well, what are you going to do? You, you need to be writing something. And uh, so I decided that this was around 2003, 10 years before I actually did retire. I could see the future coming. And I thought, well, you got to you got to start planning. And I then thought, you know what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to become a golf historian and I'm going to write books about golf history because that really interests me right now. And uh, and I uh, I started by purchasing the classics of golf library. Uh, which is the one that Herbert Warren Wynn put together with Robert McDonald. And it, uh, it was 69 volume library of what Herbert Wynn and McDonald together thought were the classic, the seminal works of golf that had been written. So I started by reading all of those, uh, which I did over the period of time between then and when I did retire. And then started looking in the bibliography of those for other pathways to go down. I'm a little bit obsessed in the sense of my wife would tell you this is that I live in constant fear that there will be something that I didn't read that's pivotally important, (laughs) you know, and uh, so I'm a obsessive reader when I'm doing a project. So I I didn't feel comfortable starting on the Tommy book until I'd read about 125 other books. Then I felt like I was starting to get to where I might have something authoritative to say. I wouldn't want to write anything if I didn't have something to say. And, and, uh, so it was during that whole period of reading that I that I made a, a trip to St Andrews in 2005 initially with a with one of my editing friends who actually edited the Long Golden Afternoon for me uh, when I first finished writing it and we went uh, well we were following Herbert Warren Wind and going north to the links of Dornock as he did for the New Yorker in 1964 started in St Andrews and we got there on a Sunday and I got to see the statue of Tommy. And I knew a little bit about it from all the books I'd been reading, but I thought, there's the story that I want to do. That's the story there. Why on earth would gentlemen from 60 golfing societies take money out of their own pocket to build a statue to a working class kid? You know, in in Scotland, in England in those days, the class distinction was Mm. everything. Mm. So he must, I felt like it just must be a truly extraordinary story of a truly extraordinary human to do that. So... That's when I set out on it in earnest, and then I directed my reading more along the line of Tommy's age, Victorian life in that time, and all the things that I thought would be necessary to be able to tell it as a story. The stuff around golf is always so interesting. Mm-hmm. That was a, did, you, did, were you, did I see you with your hand up? Were you about to something? Uh, no, I just think that's an amazing observation to see the statue and not just assume well, – and to think about the contemporary – climate in which that statue was created and then see the story there 
and the significance of that individual. And, and that, of course, becomes Monarch of the Green, uh, your first it's book. It's so interesting, Adrian, because when you stand in front of that statue, Tommy's statue dwarfs every statue in that cemetery. Every one. Yeah. If you're just entering the cemetery from one side, you can see his statue all the way across on the wall. It goes all the way to the top of the wall. His father's marker, and his father is millions of times more famous than Tommy was before I wrote that book, or probably still. Uh, his father is is tiny by comparison. Alan Robertson, the first professional at St. Andrews, uh, his is tiny by comparison. So, And, of course, the only one that's about the same size as Tommy's is for Hugh Lyon Playfair, who is the savior of the city of St. Andrews. So Great name. The, the physical scope of it, not to mention the fact that all these people had contributed – gave you a sense that uh, this was something truly extraordinary. And so that's when I really decided, okay, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to just start doing a lot of research in newspapers and everything I need to do to pull that story off. And uh, I did retire at the end of 2012, just about 2013. And uh, when I had my last day of work on a Friday and on Saturday, I wrote the first chapter started it. it it's, You're a better man. It's me. interesting. That, I'd still be procrastinating. Yeah, that's very motivated. <laughs> and it reminds me of a, of a saying I heard, and you seem to have found your thing, Stephen, in life, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Good for you. Because uh, there's, there's a, a saying I've heard um, that your life isn't long enough to get good at many things, so you've got to be careful at what you get good at. <laughs> I think that is so true. And honestly, I'm only good at one thing, and that is – writing you know everything else i'm i'm passable at I, I was pretty good at chess for a while and i i became quite good at, at horse race games. Were, were you a junior chess champion at your school uh, Stephen? uh i was on the chess team in high school and i was undefeated there yes <laughs> oh okay right. are, are there any Let, let's move on <laughs> are there any school chess team junior members in the in the room with us at the moment uh yeah well, well funnily enough yes who would have thought <laughs> let's get to the the book, what interests me about all this stuff and the story you tell about young Tom there, we're all guilty of this, particularly when we're younger, this notion of recency bias. So Tiger Woods, to date the show, Tiger Woods went into the World Golf Hall of Fame yesterday, which made news all over the place, in fact, dominated golf news. Without young Tom, there is no Tiger. That's true, is it not, Stephen? We can't get to here without passing true. through there. Golf's no, first superstar. And you might not even have golf. Yes. At the time that young Tommy came along in 18... 18- 51 he was born and in 1864 he made his public debut as a golfer that was at the height of the industrial revolution and that was significantly changing life in britain and around the world and the disruption of that caused uh, a lot of people to have less time for golf and then the, the the sport was waning particularly even in old senators like edinburgh before tommy came along and 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 the open championship came along some years before he made his debut his fame helped to revive interest in a game in a way that helped save it along with the invention of the gutty ball, which is without any doubt uh, the most important thing that's ever happened. Well, it makes it affordable, doesn't it? That's the key. Right. Makes it affordable. Brings yes. it to more people. Right. It's uh, Right. And then Tommy coming along right behind that. The gutty ball is introduced roughly in 1848. Tommy is born in 1851. Even still, by 1851, there were still featheries being played here and there by traditionalists. But by the time Tommy makes his debut at age of 12 at Perth in 1864, the gutty's completely taken over and more and more people are starting to drift out onto the actual links. People played golf all the time without 
like if you look at any memoir of an old St. Andrews guy like Sandy Hurd or even Tom himself, old Tom himself, they played with champagne corks that had screws stuck in them, stuck in them to make them a little heavier. And whatever club they could figure out how to make from a, a tree or from a shinty stick or anything. What, what, and uh, what would be the so uh, they could actually then go out onto the links with proper equipment once the gutty came along. Yeah. What would be the inflation adjusted price of a feathery? <laughs> oh, wow, days, yeah. Like Pro V one is like nine bucks or yeah. something. Like, what would be a feathery well, cost? Like fifty. It would bucks? be just astronaut like a, a single feathery, which of course might not even last around if it was raining. Uh, cost more than your club. They were extremely Amazing. expensive, uh, and that was the thing that kept golf from being played by people other than the wealthy, what I would call proper golf. People played street golf with whatever they could, but proper long game on the links, as David Hamilton, the great historian, puts it. The long game on the links was reserved for wealthy gentlemen until the invent, uh, invention of the gutty ball, and that made it possible for the working man, anybody, to play golf because they were just a shilling. Mm. I would so. love they to read the cheap. instruction article on how to um, fade and draw the cork with screws in it. <laughs> what, what technique <laughs> yeah, changes are required to make that move one way or the other? Stunning stuff. Which brings us neatly to, and I, we've kind of got a bit sidetracked by Monica the Green, which is understandable. The reason it was so incredibly popular is because it's a fantastic book about a fabulously interesting topic. But this second book is talking about something similar, isn't it? Though possibly a bit more broadly, I think, Stephen, this notion of a period of change in the game which I think we probably saw in our lifetime around certainly in equipment and the way the game is played to where we are now around that late 90s to early 2000s with particularly the solid core ball, which changed things for the professional game as much as any piece of equipment perhaps in the issue of the game. You're talking about another period of change. Tell us about what this long golden, this long golden afternoon? What's, what's the, long the period? Yeah, the long golden age afternoon. of glory. There you go. Tell us why this period, what was so important about it. And I suspect even people with an interest in golf history will not have heard of all of the names of the people that you've you've sort of unearthed here and their role around this time. The Long Golden Afternoon really tells the story of what Tommy wrought, basically. When Tommy coming of age and making the game so famous helped first to spread the game down into England and from England around the world. But what happened is that it is really the coming-of-age story for golf. So in, the, in, in 1890, uh, an amateur golfer named John Ball Jr., who is probably the greatest golfer that no one's ever heard of, mm -hmm. he's got nine major championship wins, and no one's heard of him, uh, he won the Open Championship in 1890 at Presswick in Scotland as an amateur player. And that really opened the floodgates of golf in England because the fact that when golf transmissioned out of Scotland, it was taken up first by wealthy gentlemen. That would be true when it transitioned to America as well. There was not a tradition and history of playing golf among children in England as there was in Scotland with the Sandy Herds and their champagne corks. Kids in England played different games, cricket, rugby. They didn't have any interest in golf. And it was only gentlemen who took up golf, mostly because other wealthy gentlemen they knew who were Scottish merchants wanted to play it in their neighborhood. So in 1864, you have Royal North Devon Golf Club formed by a friend of old Tom Morris's. In 1869, Royal Ho Liverpool is formed by, um, and the course is laid out by Tom's brother, George. So the Morris family, everything traces from the Morris family into this new age. And golf is growing fairly decently between 
1864, and 1890. I won't remember the numbers correctly, but there was something on the order of 230 courses in England by the time John Ball stepped up to the first tee at Presswick in 1890. In the years between 1890 and the First World War, which is the period that the book covers, there we go from 230-some golf courses in England to more than 1,000. And uh, and many more clubs playing over those courses than the number of courses themselves, because many clubs would be played over by many courses would be played on by more than one club. You also have women entering the game. And then you you start to see a huge ushering in of all kinds of changes uh, associated with the growth of the game. Is, has there been, can we point to any other period of it? When you, when you talk about this, particularly the growth in the number of courses, and I'm sure there's more to it than that, we must think about the 80s, surely. The 1980s, when the golf, the real estate driven golf course boom happened, and we saw what the eventual result of that was, which was not really a net positive for golf necessarily. It was sort of exposed as, as not being really about golf. Has there been other periods in history where we've seen a boom like what you're talking about? I definitely think the Tiger era is probably the most comparable one. Uh, when Tiger comes along, there's a great boom in golf. But I think you're right that some of the solid core ball technology is comparable there. During the period of the long golden afternoon that we're talking about, uh, you see the establishment of other major championships, uh, in particular the British PGA Championship, the formation of professional golf associations, the rise of professional golfers themselves in England, when all English clubs that opened hired a Scottish professional at the beginning. But when Englishmen started to play, then there became the development of English professionals, beginning with John Henry Taylor winning the Open in 1894. That opened the floodgate for English professionals. And then you would have huge developments like 1902, the introduction of the the uh, Haskell ball is really uh, one of the bigger, more revolutionary changes in the age and that came along at a time when clubs were already undergoing a lot of improvement. So you have massive improvement in technology, massive growth in the game of golf worldwide, including in Australia, Ireland, the United States, South America, South Africa, all kinds of places where the game is taking root simultaneously. So Golf Illustrated, the main magazine of Britain, is now circulating around the world. And so more and more people are coming to the game. There's revolutionary technological change. And then, of course, there's the introduction of literature. There's a lot of golf literature being written, starting with Horace Hutchinson, starting with uh, the first full-time magazine devoted to golf, which is the one that became Golf Illustrated, and that also uh, comes out in 1890. So all these things unfold during the decade that basically turn golf into the modern game that you know now. Mm, I was going to say the that period saw the emergence of of golf writing, uh, which is what yes. I find fasc- fascinating. And Horace Hutchinson considered by many to be the first significant golf writer. He definitely was. He wrote a book. Uh, well, first off, he wrote a really charming book that you have to find called Hints on the Game of Golf uh, in 1886, which was uh, kind of a cheeky instructional manual with things like, if your opponent is badly bunkered, there is no rule against your standing above him and counting his strokes aloud. With increasing gusto as their number mounts up. But it would be a wise precaution to arm yourself with a niblick before doing so, so as to meet him on equal terms. That is but, uh, so he writes that, and then in 1890, he publishes a book called Badminton Library's Golf. Badminton Library, this whole age is an age when sport is becoming more and more important in Victorian society. As a recreation? And that's a big part of, 
as mm-hmm. recreation, but also as moral compass, teaching you how to lose gracefully, uh-huh. teaching you how to do your bit for the team, okay. all these other uh, things that made a good gentleman. And so uh, there was a man named uh, Beaufort, and uh, he he started the Badminton Library of Sports and Pastimes. And it did stuff on like hunting, steeplechasing, uh, all the various sports that would be considered uh, gentlemanly sports. And it was a really pivotal development when the 13th volume was devoted exclusively to golf. That was uh, one of the most important, maybe the most important golf book ever published. Horace Hutchinson was the editor of the book, and he also uh, was the writer of about 85% of it. He included a number of very famous people to write it, including Arthur Balfour, who would one day be the Prime Minister of England, and others, uh, Andrew Lang, the great historian, Thomas Hodge, the artist. So there was an array of luminaries working on the book, but it was principally him. And uh, that was the book that Bernard Darwin grew up reading and adoring and referred to all the time as my dear old badminton. Hmm. And uh, his, his was read so many times the pages were falling out. And I think Horace later became good friends with Bernard and Bernard was uh, inspired by Horace to do some of the things he did do later. You note early in the book, Stephen, that, and that it's rare golf becomes a global game, a game played around the world. How rare is that? I immediately, I'd never thought about golf in those terms. Well, you think soccer, obviously, is pretty universal. It's probably the biggest. Right. There are not many. I would say soccer, tennis, and golf seem yeah. to be about yeah. the only ones to me. Uh, I can't think of it. American football isn't. Rugby isn't. Uh, cricket, no. You know, so cricket really isn't. Baseball, although no. That's changed. Baseball is not. Uh, so it is a rare thing. And, you know, honestly, the big one of the things I would always tell my writers at the newspaper was a book has to be about something larger than the set of facts involved. Any story has to be about some idea that's larger than the set of facts the story tells. And the thing that really once I started diving deeply into the Tommy book, the thing that impressed me was here you had a game that was played for four centuries pretty much frozen in amber without any change at all. And then in 50 years, a period of 50 years from 1848 to 1898, the game is then global. So the Tommy story and this book together, I feel like answer the question of how does a game that had been played this same way unchanged for four centuries suddenly become a global game in 50 years. And that's what the two books uh, set out to answer that much larger question. I, th- I think it, it goes to the fact that there's something so uh, primeval about golf. If golf didn't exist, someone yeah, would invent someone it. Someone would invent it. And it's, it's much like track and field. You know, every, everybody, every able-bodied person can run and, and walk and jump and do things like that. So it, it, it naturally becomes a global sport, and I think golf is similar in that manner. It's interesting, though, this even in as much as, and these are the issues we're starting to bump up against in modern times, football in particular uh, is very easy and inexpensive. It needs a ball and a bit of space. It can be played on a road. Golf is different in that it is, in terms of land, it's resource intense. You need a big area to play golf, and for that game to take off globally is incredibly interesting, I think. We're starting to see... Now, things go the opposite way. The pressure's on golf to reduce or disappear completely to make room for other things. But that would have been such a barrier, you'd imagine. So it's, you know, it's something assuming, about golf. Rod, because Assuming it's formalised playing area and not 
used for other things, like Scottish Golf Club in London. Oh, true, yeah. Was just parkland. It's, yes. it's on the common. The, and the people. Many, many golf courses in Scotland and England were on common land. St. Andrews is yeah. common property. Wimbledon, I think, is still. You can be playing there and somebody could be walking down Granny Clark's Wind. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, people do stroll out onto the course uh, at Wimbledon Common. Obviously, that's public land. They played there. But one interesting thing is at the beginning, uh, you know, many golf courses had a relatively small number of holes. The original course at Leith was five holes. Some courses were seven. They, there wasn't necessarily the idea that you had to have giant piece of land with multiple holes at the beginning. Uh, you, you created crafty holes from the land available to you and played around them as many times as you thought you needed to to, to make a round. So Presswick, when Tommy played in the Open, was 12 holes, and you had to play three times for the 36-hole championship. Uh, and and Leith was like that, too, and a lot of the others at the beginning. Is the only rule still the diameter of the cup? That's oh, the only thing that defines the playing field so. in golf? Just about four and a quarter. That's why we're so obsessed with everything. I, it, it brings me back to that. I'm fascinated by that Horace Hutchinson uh, volume in the badminton library of sports and pastimes. Um, and I'm especially drawn to that word pastimes because golf is a pastime. It's not necessarily for, – for most people, I think, if you approach it like that, you think of it as something that this is for enjoyment, it's a pastime. And I, I'm guessing from what you're saying, before John Ball, it, the gentlemen who were playing golf weren't necessarily – might have even been frowned upon to be good at it. Is that the case? No, I wouldn't say that, but the thing is, it was more of a social game than it was a competitive game. Yep. You know, you played a match against somebody in your club, it was almost always a foursome, uh, it not, as opposed to a singles match, uh, you know, alternate shot. It was more about the gambling and the drinking uh, and the dinner than it was about uh, any kind of competitive thing. But, that you know, even from the earliest days... Uh, there were medals or clubs to compete for. In 1744, uh, the gentlemen golfers of Leith petitioned the city of Edinburgh to provide them a silver club to compete for annually on the links. And the winner was considered the captain of the golf. And uh, when you won, you would attach a silver golf ball to the club. And that tradition continues mm -hmm. to this day where the city gives a new Same club ways. every time the, the present club is filled up. So there, and at St. Andrews had multiple medals that they competed for. So there were always competitions, but really when the golf meeting took place, other than the big autumn or, or spring meetings that were business meetings, in addition to uh, social gatherings, it, w it was mainly about having, you know, you would play your foursome in the morning, you would have lunch together. Uh, you would uh, then play your foursome in the evening and have dinner together you would get really drunk on claret and you would sing songs and a lot of other fun things like that. So what happened to that? The bill for some of these dinners is extraordinary. Why can't we get an amount of alcohol that? consumed is beyond <laughs> comprehension. No wonder it took off in, uh, globally. Imagine, I right can right just there. imagine them staggering out and go, I'm going to hit one with the silver club. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah, no, somebody uh, once wrote that uh, they never left without the better part of a gallon of claret in their belly or whatever. Wow. And, and uh, if you, if you, if you did a misdeed at the club, you were normally fined in bottles of claret. Uh, so if you had an infraction, like you didn't wear your red jacket, you might get fined three bottles of claret, which you then had to supply for the dinner that evening. And so, everybody, of course, would drink them. Obviously, things like that are what kept professional golfers out of that that ceremony, if you like. Yeah. So professional golfers, 
how I mean, how would professional golfers how do they carve out a niche for themselves in in that environment? Like, what's the what's the purpose of well, a professional of course, golfer in that environment? The professional golfer then was making money by playing in foursomes as the partner of a gentleman. So, uh, John White Melville, the main guy at St. Andrews, would hire Tommy to be his partner, and he would play against Alexander Kinlock, who has Davy Strath as his partner, and they play a foursome match. Big money is on the line. All the money put up by White Melville and Kinlock. Say they play a match for 50 pounds, let's say, which is a lot, probably bigger than most of them, but let's just use that number. If they win, then, you know, uh, the winning professional, Tommy was different than other professionals, but the typical winning professional would get 10% if they won and some kind of tip if they didn't win. Uh, definitely not 10%. So that was one of the ways they engaged themselves, but professionals very quickly formed their own clubs. In 1851, Tom, old Tom, formed the Presswick Mechanics Club, uh, which played at nearby Presswick St. Nicholas. And uh, in St. Andrews, when he got there, they, uh, they, they also had, so there were working men's clubs affiliated with most of the cities, and that's where the professional golfers played. And they mostly met in pubs. They didn't have like a building like the Royal and Ancient, but they met regularly in a pub, and I'm sure they had their own sort of fun, probably... Uh, mocking the people who presume to be their betters would be my guess is how they spent some of their evenings. Mm. And and all the money and prize money in the world could never make them a gentleman, could it? No. <laughs> no. There, was a, by- there was a class distinction there that was not crossable. That's one of the reasons that the Tommy story is so interesting mm. is that, you know, Tommy was, you know, became highly educated and that gave him a, a leg up on, on uh, other people in his class level. Uh, but, you know, even Tommy was not, you know, and old Tom himself never entered the Royal and Ancient except for a green committee meeting without knocking on the window and asking to be to speak to someone. He didn't he couldn't just go into the Royal Ancient. Yeah. He was only allowed to enter when he was attending meetings. It's a staggering thing to think about, isn't it? It's well, <laughs> right up into the 20th century. There was- I, well, I'm always struck by the story of Harry Varden uh, from the greatest game ever played when he convalesces for a while with consumption um, and basically disappears from the world game. Uh, at this point, he's already won four of his five opens, I think, Stephen. I'm going to get that wrong. but um, I believe it was uh, – I believe he'd won four, but I, I'd have to – I don't have all that memorized. Uh, and he's off the scene for two or three years, um, funnily enough, staying in a – uh, like a nursing he's home. He's actually not gone that long. It wasn't that he's long? only gone like eight months. Eight, he's able it was to come only back eight and months. Play. Okay. Mm-hmm. He, Maybe not even that. It might have been more like six, but he was in a sanatorium for a while. With a golf course uh, next to it. It took him well. a while to get back to his peak form right. after that. He obviously. never putted and as good as he could before. He never, he, he developed a hitch in his putting that limited him, but he, uh, he continued to play pretty, pretty great golf and uh, to win more opens and to win a lot more tournaments besides all that. The, the comment he made, I think, in a letter to somebody was that he felt forgotten and it's like a racehorse. Like he, he realized his lot in life is, is just like the racehorse that everyone can back as soon as it's not winning. They, they forgot about it. Ride, monkey, ride. Yeah. It's the, <laughs> exactly. You're an entertainer. You're there for our <laughs> entertainment and you're disposable. There'll be another one along any minute. Uh, there's still a truth That's to that. That's how the open maybe. started was as entertainment for the uh, hmm. autumn meeting. As really as something to gamble on, the the, the gentlemen who were in these clubs were big time gamblers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they that's how great matches happened. 
They put up the stakes. They loved gambling. And the open uh, and associated type events like that were originally attached to the autumn meeting at Presswick. All the opens were oh. played at October when Presswick had its autumn meeting. So it would be entertainment for the guests to, to go and watch the open and also an opportunity to bet. Is that what brought it to the latter. Musselburgh as well? With the race, co- race same course there? at all yeah. the courses, same at St. Andrews. Uh, you know, the, the first 10 years, the Oceanman obviously are only at Presswick. And it isn't until 1872 that St. Andrews and Musselboro are asked to become part of the rotation and join in and help to buy the claret jug. But the reason that, you know, but when great matches were staged in the early days, they were mostly staged in association with club meetings so that there would be something to watch. What makes sense Some form of entertainment in addition. If you can't get there, then it's not a spectator. It's not a spectator. So it's got to be yeah. around a time when people are going to be there. It's, it's the obvious exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, some years after that, uh, professional golf became popular enough among the masses that you could have a match that wasn't associated with the meeting, say, by 1870 or so, partly because Tommy had already won the belt then. Uh, that's when, uh, you know, old Tom and Willie Park have their great match over four greens that ends up being halted by the referee because uh, Musselboro fans won't let Tom take an unimpeded swing and are kicking his ball into gorse bushes and this and that, so... Pretty rowdy scene in those days. Not Where's like the protection? Uh, what the PGA I was going to say Hoffman's blowing the, up yeah, about Charlie a bad Hoffman. line of bunker. <laughs> the PGA Tour well, could the thing provide to keep more in protection. mind about a match. The thing to keep in mind about a match is there might be a crowd of five thousand on the golf course, but they're only watching one hole. Yeah, absolutely. Time. They're That's all staggering. on that same hole. Yeah, it's it's, it's a sort of like if you go to a go- if you go to a golf tournament, you come down to the 18th where it's going to be decided. Everybody at the golf tournament is around that hole. Mm. That's the way it was at all matches. Yeah, I know. Right, only one thing going on. Walking the fairways, the players in amongst them with caddies and effectively right. anything else that was going on. Doesn't look anything like what we see in golf today, does it? The whole organized no, not at all, professional spectacle. So you would have found this, I'm sure, Stephen, doing your research, and you would find this a lot. Anytime I read about golf in the past, and particularly going back 100 years or more, you keep stumbling across these ideas that you make you think to yourself, God, if only we still did that. I was particularly thinking about it when you mentioned courses with all sorts of numbers of holes. We didn't really get this formalized notion of golf as a nine or 18 hole only game until fairly recently. And you just, you keep falling over these details, don't you? The notion of the, if, if professional golf was not a field of 154 played over 72 holes the way we are used to it, it could be something so incredibly interesting, couldn't it? Something more like what you see with uh, the UFC and WWE. People could vote on who they wanted to watch play against each other in matches. The game could have gone so many ways, couldn't it, in, in, yes, in, in think, every facet? I think really the, the terrible thing that happened is stroke play became more interesting to people than match play. And, uh, more interesting or a more sensible way to decide? It's undeniable that golf, as we know it under the form that we watch yeah. professional, it is the most sensible to, way to decide the best player that week, clearly. Yes, that is true. And, and as, a, as an exigency of time, it was essential. But, the, you know, the English people, Harry Varden and John Henry Taylor in particular, English professionals, uh, came to believe that that was a truer test of determining a champion stroke play than match play. Whereas Scott's always felt like the true test of a champion is a multi-hole match, 36-hole match, preferably a match over multiple golf courses at 36 holes each. That's that's a real championship test. But, you know, during those years, Rod, there were a lot of formats that were, I think, could be used now. My own per- like one of the most popular formats as the game became big in England and 
lots of people were playing was uh, stroke play leading to match play. Mm-hmm. So they would have a uh, two days of stroke play uh, to get 16 finalists, and those 16 finalists would play off for the title. The top. The US amateur model, and a lot of clubs will still yes. play that format to identify a club we've champion. Just, we've just abandoned that with uh, the Australian amateur. Yeah, that's exactly right. But yeah. sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that would be the right format for the FedEx Cup, an actual championship. Yes. Play stroke, play as many days as required to reduce the field to whatever you think is appropriate. Eight would you handicap or- that, Stephen, the way they do now? Would you handicap no, that so the FedEx Cup leader starts the stroke by 10 shots ahead no, that of the is, person in last? That's not golf. There's no golf. <laughs> it's not golf. <laughs> that's nonsense. That's it's complete nonsense. It's got nothing to do with golf. No, of course it doesn't. That's sponsorship is all that is. It's got zero to do with golf. I refuse to watch the FedEx Cup anymore. Let's not get not started golf. on a show because you and I might go on all day if yeah. we're not careful. I only watch golf. That's not golf. <laughs> that's exactly true. There's the shadow leaderboard in the FedEx Cup. That can keep you amused. Um, it strikes me what you're talking there. We, we talked about you know, that's the sensible way to identify. You know, it's true. Sensible is really the most fun, isn't it? And one of the great things about golf, one of the things that makes golf unique is, unlike most sports, it doesn't have this notion of uh, hard lines. It, most sports, it's either in or out. They're the simple decisions to make. Golf doesn't have any of that, does it? Almost. You've got out of bounds on the golf course, but it rarely comes into play. Everything else is at the mercy of what the player thinks, what the player then does, and then how the player does for the next. So it's unique in so many ways, applying that sensible notion, takes something away, doesn't it? Stroke play, you're right, I think, takes something away from the entertainment value of golf, I suspect. I feel like it's boring compared to watching matches. Mm. And I think there's a reason the Ryder Cup, Solheim Cup, those events are the most Mm. popular in golf because a match is exciting every minute. But you couldn't do it every week, could you? And this is the problem. You can't do it yeah, every I, week. But I would like to see like this silly little thing they do that's called the match where they get, you know, I would actually like to see great matches return where the players put up their own money mm. against each other. Mm. And uh, in, in, in taking a page from the gentleman's book where the gentleman put up money, these guys are, are pretty wealthy guys. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to see, uh, you know, Rory take on, one of the great American players and there, and like say Rory versus Rom, or he's obviously not American or Rory versus uh, Colin Morikawa for, you know, 50,000, hundred thousand. They're each putting up 200,000, whatever you want to name. I think these days the audiences are so cynical that I don't think anybody would believe that it really is well, their Rory's money. Rory's money. Yeah. 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 That, Even if you took it out of his own pocket, you'd think someone else had put it there. Yeah. The, exactly. The world no, is- that's true. It's, uh, it's We live a, in a pretty- So cynical these now. days. Well, yeah. one of the appeals, of course, of the Ryder Cup and the Solon Cup is because it isn't about money. It's the only time we see these guys play for anything other than yeah. money. So you know the motivation- is pure in that sense that the the antagonism is real. Ironically, it is very much about money. Of course, for, it is for I'll, the organisers well, in particular, but not not on the course but on the day. I agree. I agree. You know, Rory and it's Reed, not a factor at all in the motivation right. for but being selected or playing. The only way Rory and Reed could have been spicier is if they were playing for ten dollars at that Ryder Cup, that fabulous sort of first eight holes yep. they played with, they were both yeah. worn out by the end of that. <laughs> if they'd been playing for a dollar or two or ten, that would be the only thing that could have made that more yeah. interesting. So I think Nicholas put an end to putting your own money in as well, didn't he, in the 80s during a skins game? It was a big controversy in a skins game, I think, wasn't it? Should they put their own money in uh, because it, yeah. was, it was seen as uh, sort of excessive, almost grotesque, obnoxious greed uh, to be playing for so much money in these skins matches and uh, – 
the suggestion was they should put their own money in. Nicholas said, "No, no, I'm comfortable. I'm sure I'm quite still- comfortable uh, having sponsors." No, they never. They're never going to put, gonna the put their own money. Yeah. In. I know that. Sure, but they still I, do. I still feel rounds. like that would. I, if those matches were real matches, uh, you know, and not these sort of silly televised events, I think that'd be good for golf. Yeah, the shells, wonderful world of golf concept. It's, I don't think it's possible to recreate that the purity of that anymore. Even that in the modern like game, a match at stroke play, which makes no sense at all. Metal match, yeah. Although that worked fantastic for the Dunhill Cup, which was it was a team. Fasc- no, always I mean, a fascinating I love contest. Shell's wonderful yeah. world of golf. That's a Herbert Warren win creation, also, by the way. He's such an influential man in golf. But in let any me case, guess, uh, your third book is going to be about Herbert Warren Winston <laughs> or Bernard Darwin. No, he's actually, a big I, I'm oh, sorry, Darwin. I'm saying Darwin. I would love to write a literary biography of Darwin, but I'm not sure if I have that in me. That's a pretty big undertaking. I, I'm going to do one. I want to do something about women's golf next, and I, uh, I have decided to do a book uh, about um, that. The idea of it would be that it would be built around a match in 1929 between Joyce Weatherid of England and Glenna Kletvair of the United States. And that match is a, an unbelievably exciting match that unfolds. Is it at the old course? At the old course. At the old course. Yes. And the, the train goes and past was, and toots while she's putting or something and that, she doesn't that's hear That's at it? a different place, but that's a very famous Joyce yeah, story. I mean, yes, but it, remember, that took yeah. place at a club called Sheringham. Uh-huh. But anyway, uh, through that, you could tell, you could talk about the rise of English golf that brings us Joyce Weatherid and the rise of American golf that brings us Glenn and Colette Vare. And it became a particularly significant match in part because at that time, America had completely overrun Britain in the open, starting with Jock Hutchinson in 1921 and followed by Walter Hagen the next year. Uh, only one British victory in the open took place between 1921 and 1934 when Henry Cotton finally ended that long night of darkness with his victory. So the last holdout was Joyce. Joyce could never be vanquished by Glenna Collette or any American. And so British men, uh, Britain in general, took quite a bit more interest in this match than they would have in a typical woman's match because... Joyce was the last stand of Britain, pretty much, as far as golfers were concerned. And uh, the match is 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 a close one all throughout, and I'm not going to reveal the ending no, of it right now. But uh, So that's my next book. I'm oh, thinking is this uh, a world I'm going to do that. <laughs> I think he's just Pardon giving me? us a world exclusive. Is this a yeah, world exclusive, yeah. Stephen? No, it's not a world exclusive. Joyce finally prevails. But uh, no, Glenna the- starts out winning so big that uh, – at lunch, Bernard Darwin uh, writes an essay about lunch that he uh, about the feeling at lunchtime when Glenn is leading and Joyce seems to not be able to have it, uh, called "ghastly, horrible but true," which uh, which gives you an idea of how Britain felt at that moment. But Joyce comes back and wins it late in the match. But it's a it's a thrilling duel to the end, and uh, I just think it creates it's a great story, and I really feel women's golf is turning a corner worldwide, and it's about time that that something uh, something got done about women's golf is how I'm feeling and that's what I want to do. I agree and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you're doing it. There, there's, there's a lot of interesting things happening around women's golf. There's a lot of reasons I feel like why women's golf is on the rise in this generation, not the least of them being the state of men's golf in some ways. There's a lot of golfers pine for watching a game that looks different to what the PGA Tour serves up. I think that's a, 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 that's a feeling amongst not all but a significant enough number of golf fans. Certainly my feeling. I, I find myself watching the LPGA w- more and more than okay. I do the men's yeah. game. And you would hear that the, from a lot of other people, the, Stephen. I hear it from a lot of people as well. Is it- yeah, it's just 
architecturally more, they play the game the way the course was designed, which I find interesting on its face. In patches, and, they uh, play on better courses, that whole West Coast swing. Now they're getting to play on better courses. It's going to be really exciting to see them play at some of the classic courses, as it has been already. Indeed. So and that's a wonderful trend for the women's game. Generally, much better golf swings as well, like objectively more uh, orthodox and like square to square sort of golf swing. I don't feel qualified to comment on that, I'll be honest with well, you. Well, um, Anya Alvarez made this comment the other day about all the men sw- sending her uh, video- videos, <laughs> yeah, videos, videos of their swings. Of their swings or, or she picks. said, I don't need to see, I don't need to see either of those <laughs> things. Right. I think that's what she said, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't need to see either of those things. If I want to look at a good golf swing, I'll look at the women's tour. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like this year that easily the most exciting event of the year was the Solheim Cup. That okay. was by far the most exciting thing to watch all year long last year. Yeah. Oh, that was. Leona McGuire just was amazing. She was on fire. McGuire on fire. Uh, indeed. You mentioned there this third book, and it's the third book that's the world exclusive, Stephen, not the match between those yeah, that, two. That's, that, right. that's old news, but the, right. you're doing a third yes. book is is, uh, is a world exclusive. The notion yes, of Mark Frost exclusive. does this with those sort of half historically true rises. Take an event, and this is where the newspaper man comes out, I think. Take that event and use it as the prism to which to through which to view a whole bunch of other much bigger and more important stuff. And I'm getting the sense that that's exactly what you've done with this long golden afternoon. Take a singular yes. event and build out from there to explain why it is happening the way it is happening at that moment in time. Yes, that's exactly right, Rod. And this book, you know, when John Ball wins the Open, I think you can imagine when Englishmen start playing golf – what do you think would be the first thing they wish to do? Oh, beat the Scots. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and that starts just probably one of the greatest sports rivalries ever. So the dramatic backdrop of the story is this uh, two-decade-long battle between the English and the Scots for supremacy at the game. Uh, obviously, up until the time of John Ball, no Englishman had won the Open. Uh, and then – you know, Englishmen started winning the Open like crazy. And, of course, in the early amateurs, Englishmen, most Scotsmen, you know, Scotsmen didn't play as much at the beginning. But then, you know, it became a huge contest between England and Scotland in both the Open and the amateur. And eventually later, in 1902, uh, Hoylake begins the international amateur match, which is almost immediately followed by a professional international match, which is a team of Scottish golfers, versus a team of English golfers, so just as we would do in the Ryder Cup, singles in the morning, foursomes in the afternoon, that sort of thing. And uh, actually, Bernard Darwin is on the very first international team put together for England to face the Scots in 1902 at Royal Liverpool. Interesting enough, he's a student then. It's not till 1908 that he starts writing for the Times. Uh, but those matches became very wildly popular, and this whole rivalry is... The story of the book is the story of the unfolding of that rivalry. And within that story comes all the developments that change golf, make revolutionary changes in golf, including, you know, uh, intellectual contributions by the very smart people that played golf and continue to do that up until this day. The literature, the inventions, the invention of the new ball, the response to the invention of the new ball or failure to respond, actually, if you would. Listen, John Lowe would tell you failure to respond to the new ball, uh, which creates the same exact arguments that we're having right now. Of course. Uh, when they, when the new ball came along, John Ball and a man named Muir Ferguson, who was a champion amateur golfer, put uh, an agenda item on the Royal and Ancients agenda, the rules committee, 
to uh, ban the new ball from golf uh, and to make declare the gutty ball to be the ball that golf would have to be played for forever. And they were pointing out that if you continue to have balls go farther, you have to move all your tees back on every golf course. That's expensive. There's not that I much thought, land. I never thought of that stuff. Crazy. Interesting yeah, argument, no, isn't and it? And there are also argue, there are a number of people that argue for, well, why don't we have gutty to be the ball of the professional players and then the amateur players can play with the with the new Haskell ball because it helps the amateur play better and enjoy the game more. But there should be a ball for professionals and a ball for amateurs. That's a big part of the argument. It's all the exact same things we're talking about now, uh, completely unchanged. And, of course, what happens is um, Arthur Balfour, the prime minister, uh, comes out in favor of the Haskell ball because it helps him play better. The, prime, the, the garden, <laughs> the, the prime uh, minister, the prime minister yeah. stepped in? Yes, he did. And uh, the, uh, the, also, the um, head editor of Golf Illustrated was uh, uh, loved to play golf, and he felt that Haskell improved his game. Interestingly, in the final vote on the Rules Committee, one of the people who voted in favor of the Haskell ball was Harry Colt, the architect, uh, which you might think of as counterintuitive, given how things unfolded after that. Mm. But the majority of people seem to feel like, hey, this helps the amateur play better, and that's good for the game. Uh, which is one of the principal arguments today, I think. There's a whole uh, semantic around that notion of play better too, yeah. isn't there? I think that that's a whole <laughs> – there's lots to right. unpack about what playing better actually might Yes, what mean. actually means. I all, would agree. All the gutter perch but of that's trees how it, around it, it the un, world. That was a very big part of the argument then was that it, you know the same arguments that we have today literally unchanged. That's one of the things that the book emphasizes quite a bit. And has the planet grown in size since then, Stephen, or are those arguments now more urgent? I think they are way more urgent <laughs> because uh, not only has the planet not grown in size, but it's been assaulted from every direction and is about to expire. So we need to uh, do something about that, particularly as it pertains to yeah, golf. Indeed. The role of that rivalry between the English and the Scots, in a way, is what dri- – that, that smaller thing is, in a way, what drives these bigger things, isn't it? the technological innovation. Somebody in England wants their players to have an advantage, so they get cracking on innovating something about the ball or a club or whatever it might be. Uh, and then somebody in Scotland is thinking the same thing, and they get cracking on doing something about agronomy or course design or whatever it might be. It's a, it's a very direct correlation, isn't there, between this kind of head-to-head idea, the human rivalry, which drives all the other stuff around it, which ultimately has a much bigger impact over time, but it's all driven by that very smallish notion of people against people. That is so true. And I think that is the thing that gets the average citizen interested in golf, not the gentleman, you know, in England in particular, obviously it was always true in Scotland, but in England, you know, uh, when the, the, the thing became a contest between English and Scots, and you could read any issue of the golfing annual, uh, and, you know, when Harold Hilton, for instance, follows up John Ball's win in the open with one of his own two years later, uh, the uh, the golfing annual puts a little admonition at the end of its coverage to the to the Scottish professionals had better look to their laurels uh, and all this other sort of thing. So it's it was constantly in the newspaper that you know England is getting ahead of us. If we're going to answer as Scotsmen, we better answer now. And uh, there's a, there's a lot of that, and it does it did drive interest in every aspect of it: technology, literature. Uh, the common man playing more golf in England and uh, the growth of golf courses and everything else. Probably see a bit of that with the the Tiger Woods boom too, don't we? It's the one I always come back to. I mean, Nicholas was hugely popular. Norman for a time there was hugely popular, but Tiger stepped beyond golf 
Mm. My mum's interested in Tiger. She was never interested in Greg Norman. She will ask me, oh, you know, what did Tiger do? Oh, Tiger didn't win this week. So, well, no, he can't win every week. But Tiger's the only reference point that golfers and non-golfers can agree can, on, really. Yeah. Like, that's that's the one name. He's but the man. It, it brings me- That was true of Tommy when Tommy- I was about was to say, right. that, that's the same sort of feeling I get from what you're saying about Tommy. He had that, that level of superstardom. Yes. It's um, the huge you know, statue Tommy- in the, the cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, no, Tommy was uh, made a lot of money for a young man, and he, he liked to spend it. Uh, he dressed quite fancily, like a dandy, and he would attract a lot of women out to the golf course uh, to watch him play who who probably never came to golf. So he was he was bigger than big. Interesting. Uh, a bit of a meta question, Stephen. The, you write a lot about this period of, you know, 100, 120 years ago. Could the same type of historical golf writing be done these days or is there just too much of this cacophony of opinions and messed up and and just a messed up documentation of what history actually is in the at the moment boy that's a great question and i i don't think so it's not maybe not possible to write an accurate history of this time on any subject anymore it's a little more difficult that's for sure you know and honestly the characters that are in golf in the pre-war age are not explored by the press in anywhere near the level that they are now. So when you are telling their story, you know, there are no obvious warts involved that you can locate and prove. Uh, and, and so, so it becomes sort of different in that way. Uh, players were, were, it was more easy for a player to be seen as a hero by the people around him. Because whatever, and I'm certain that all these men had the same deep flaws that modern golfers have. It would be foolish to think otherwise. Uh, but it wasn't something that was part of the discussion. Uh, it just wasn't talked about. And so it's way more complicated now, I would say. And it would be very difficult to write the way that I write in this book about anything modern. That's for certain. And that's, uh, You've got facts One of the and reasons I don't I like to write about pre-war golf is that it's a it's a simpler thing. Yeah. Well, of course, the other thing you've had happen in the more modern era is that now that we do have these warts and this warts and all scrutiny of people, there's a reaction to that by those people, and so they present in a way that's very different. It's not as though they just get scrutinised and that's that. <laughs> there's very carefully crafted work done in the background yeah. to create images and you know it was the great the great thing about Woods that people found so disappointing when he had his 2009 is, oh, you know, all of this wasn't true, this amazingly crafted uh, persona that we'd been led to believe. And I think that's a bit simplistic as well. But uh, So the whole thing. So I think that's a really interesting question, how, we, we, how will we look back? Mm. So, I mean, it's probably going to be in the same way we do things now, however you choose. Yeah. Whichever I mean, narrative genuinely- you, that appeals to you, you'll be able to find a very well-crafted version of it yeah. <laughs> out there to suit your taste. There's a genuine 1984 dystopian look at history now. I do think one thing that remains true is that sports stars, if they're big enough stars, are almost always forgiven for whatever it is. Uh, you know, uh, Tiger, there's the amount of Tiger adoration that exists now is very high. And obviously, Tiger's had some very low points. Uh, I believe that there will come a time, probably when even Mickelson, oh yeah, uh, you know, is, is forgiven for everything. People and love all a that's comeback. forgotten. That's been true of all ages. You know, there were there were things Tommy did that uh, I think members of the of the uh, Royal and Ancient probably would have thought of as vulgar or uh, somebody uh, 
too big for their britches or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but, you know, Tommy was a superstar and they uh, took that with a wink, just in the same way that, you know, Tiger running into fire hydrants and getting arrested for DWI or whatever. Hugh those Grant. things are eventually overlooked. Shane Warne. <laughs> Hugh Grant, Shane Warne. Shane Warne yeah. here in Australia. It's true of entertainers, I think, isn't it, Steve? And I think I'd put them in the yeah. same category. In fact, yeah, rock and roll's been built on this notion that you, there's an expectation that you'll be doing illegal things and bad things. And that's kind of what right. makes you a hero. So, And we kind of see the same thing. We wouldn't put up with that or we don't put up with that, generally speaking, from our politicians, doctors, economists. It's not seen as their role. Their role is to do something else. It's the role of sports people to be somewhat human and show us those things. The most popular ones or the ones who have become the most popular generally have those character traits, don't they? Uh, I think it's probably fair yes, to Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, so I think Rod's about to wrap things up, but I, I want to wish you well with the new book. Um, which we didn't talk nearly enough about, but I think we've explored a bunch of issues which will be in the book and interesting. In, indeed. And uh, I just wanted to end with a couple of uh, quotes from the Amazon reviews for Monarch of the Glen. Uh, we've got- Monarch, Monarch, Green, <laughs> Monarch, of, the Monarch of the Green. Totally Excuse different me. copyright. Excuse show. me. Yeah. Uh, David M. Gormley- on Amazon, these are Amazon real Amazon reviews, verified purchases. Says fascinating history of young Tom and the game of golf. Thank you very much, Greg Daniels. Breezy, informative way to save early, save our early golf history. JT, I don't know if it's the JT. It would be the JT for sure. It's verified it purchase. All golfers should read. This was his comment. Richard D. This is I'll end on this one. Richard D. Says love it. Five stars. My daughter's dog absolutely loved this toy. Dickie D. Yes, I read that. <laughs> thanks, for that. thanks for that. Which, by the way, I assume people can still buy Monarch of the Green, and they should, uh, Stephen. Yes, that's available in paperback. We'll, we'll leave a link uh, the in the show The hardback edition sold out, but the paperback is still widely available on link in the show online sites. All the reading you do, Stephen, do you like to listen to audio books or read, read books? I read, uh, I read books, and I, uh, mm. I'm very old-fashioned. I read them with uh, index cards. So that when I see something that I think might be useful in a book, uh, I take a note of what page it's on. I write it on the index card, and I have a whole file of index cards. No, the no, 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 no. You write it on the page. So as you flick through, you can see that you've made a note and you start. Stephen, goodness me, this is fun. Some of these you're playing stroke are, play with the way you're doing this. Very you need to get active, back into match play. You're a very active reader doing <laughs> that. I don't know. That's No, so I, I, I read to find nuggets for a story. Sure. So the way I read is uh, I'm looking for something that, is helps me tell a story. So there are certain little anecdotes, little quotes, different things like that, that you think that that's material for story. So I read for, for factual understanding and, and, and context, but I, I read for story a lot. So those little nuggets in golf in particular, they're, they're the shots, aren't they? I mean, the things that stood out in Frost's book were the passages about the shots being hit and what was interesting about them and the way they're described and those sorts of things. They're, they're the sort of the, the, the building blocks of the narrative, and then it expands out from there as to what we're, we're talking about you. this the other day. So much of golf writing used to be the, the writer's observation of the golf. Not, Very little in the way of quotes. No quotes, yeah. no interviews. No. But not of just particular shots, only in the context of what they meant for the bigger event. Uh, tournament golf writing of the 50s and 60s in particular is just fascinating Those stuff. Gamers, isn't it? Game the, the game stories that yeah. were three, four, five thousand words long, uh, almost yeah. short books, and compelling from start to finish. And that's – it's hard to sort of impress them. It, it, Good writing makes you want to keep reading. You know you've read a good piece when you get to the end and your immediate reaction is, oh, I wish there was more. 
it creates a mystique about the thing they're writing about too, like a, a Western Open or LA Open or something. Reading a game story from the 50s about the LA Open is yep. something that really elevates that event. The words carry you along exactly. In that it's all demystified now with TV and- Yeah, well, and graphs else. and track man and all the rest yeah. of it. Oh, look, that's You'll all. love this, Adrian. It's got its place. You'll love this. The, the, the first time Bernard Darwin was invited to interview a player after, after a match or a, a stroke play tournament or whatever, uh, he said- uh, the readers of the Times do not care what Mr. Smith has to say. They care what I have to say. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> fabulous note to end on. We care what you have to say, Steve. It's been fabulous of you to join us today, mate. We've really, uh, really enjoyed it. I don't think this is the last time we'll have you on the pod. I say that to a lot of people. Most of them will the come first, back. Yeah, that's right. You did the book club, did you not, with um, – what's happened? Oh, there? I really love doing that with what? Adrian and Derek. And Derek, yeah. We yeah. had a great time. Such a great book, And that too. introduced me to that book, to be honest, and I, I, I have That's now staggering. recommended it to yeah. millions of people. It's a wonderful book. So wonderful book. I love the pod. I listen to this pod regularly. I think of it as one of the smartest in the space. So congratulations to you guys for making a great pod, and I'm delighted that you had I was already on. going to invite you back, Steve. <laughs> You've now made it impossible for They're me. Selling past the close. Uh, what's, what's happened to the book club? Oh, that was your yeah. uh, We ran out of You're doing Simpson, aren't you? I've got the book. I haven't read Simpson, it yet. Simpson, eh? That's yeah. <laughs> Simpson, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, wonderful. Well, need help with that. I've read that book and almost all of Simpson. So wonderful. Book. Uh, I'd yeah. be happy to join you if you need help. Okay, we might just Michael. You know Wolf. what? We Michael Wolf was going to help us with that one as well. We should restart the book club because it was popular for a reason, and it's a fabulous idea. We'll talk about that more off here. Thank you, Stephen. But great to have you along. And Logue, thank you. Always good to have your company as well. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Episode hundred and four done. Dusted. <laughs> Stephen's already gone. We'll be back to you all again <laughs> next week. Here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.